checking with us since the new year. We started a new series in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible, also the second book in the book of five, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, um, really at the heart of so much of, well, several world religions and, of course, Christianity as well. Christianity uh, believes that the Old and the New Testament are the revealed words of God through the prophets and the apostles. And so Moses, being the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, he is at the center of the story of Exodus. That's where we see him. We don't see him in the first book, uh, Genesis, but he comes on the scene, and we've been looking at uh, his birth and his life. And and today, we're going to actually zoom in on something we talked about last week, which is this famous scene of the burning bush, when God tells Moses his name and what to refer to him as. So we're going to be looking at the revelation of the personal name, Yahweh. So that'll be exciting. So um, just to kind of get us uh, going here and thinking, I just want you to think about a time when somebody in your life gave you permission to use their first name. This might have been like your girlfriend's father. This could have been your boyfriend's mother. <laughs> this could, that's usually where the tension lies, by the way, if you didn't know that. Uh, this could be like a teacher or a professor or a boss. And, um, you know, that moment they say, hey, just call me Hank. Just call me Hank. Stop with this sir stuff. Have you had that moment? It's sort of lost on us a little bit because we live in a very informal society right now. I mean, I'm like 90% sure that every person that walks into the Oval Office now, uh, the president says, just call me Joe. Just call me Joe. I'm like almost 90%, maybe 95% sure that happens. So we live in an informal culture, but imagine this moment, maybe just a a, a generation or two ago, when someone gives you permission to use their personal name. It's really a reorientation, a profound shift in that relationship. It changes it, doesn't it? When you're able to interact with them in this new way, and it's through their name. A change in the name that they say to use for them. I remember... This was actually just like a couple weeks ago. Uh, for the first time, uh, Owen, my youngest son, two-year-old, uh, said, started calling me daddy. Actually started using the words daddy. Up to this point, he's been calling me mommy. Because <laughs> that's just sort of like to him a magic word that you get whatever you want if you just say mommy. He finally said daddy, and it's like it sort of warms your soul. And then Grayson, my five-and-a-half-year-old, he's in preschool and he's, he's learning his letters and D was the letter of the week and so he was, you know, of course saying daddy but then we also taught him it's not only daddy, daddy's first name starts with a D and so the first time off of his lips roll David and it was like whew, I get goosebumps just thinking about it it was super weird <laughs> to hear him say David and so names are powerful and, and, the, and when someone speaks your name, it's powerful. And when you get to speak someone's personal name, it's powerful. So today we get to investigate just how and why God told Moses to call him by this name, which uh, we think is pronounced Yahweh. And we'll talk a little bit why I say we think, <laughs> because in the Hebrew, they don't have vowels, they have vowel pointings, and those were added at later dates by scribes. Uh, to save room on paper, they don't put, they didn't have vowels, just consonants. And because people knew how it was said, they would remember. But because this name was so revered by the Jewish people, they never said the name Yahweh out loud. So interesting stuff. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. But before we do, let me just recap how we got to this point. We, we did an overarching intro to this 
sermon series, and I really highly recommend if you haven't watched that, going to watch it. Here's a little diagram that I drew on that introduction, and it talks about how um, for the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, God moved them out of slavery so that he could move them in to worship, okay? But in between the moving out and the moving in, there's this wilderness, and that's how it is for all of us. God will move us out of one thing, often into a wilderness period. And and sometimes that wilderness period lasts a long time. It did for the Israelites 40 years, but for others it's shorter so that he can move us in. And he's always doing something in the wilderness. So he's stripping us of something that needs to be removed so that we might do the thing which he is moving us into. And in the case of the Israelites, it's worship. And I think in our case, it's worship. So if he's moving you out of something into the wilderness, he's going to be moving you towards or into worship. That's what he wants to do, if he is actually involved. So we talked about that, and, and then we got into the story, and we hear about Moses, who was born at a time when, the, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was killing all the newborn sons because this people group, the Hebrews, was, was rising in power, in number, and, and he was scared that if they organized, they could create an army and overthrow him, and so they, he was trying to murder Um, all the newborn babies to kind of kill off a generation, and uh, God miraculously saves Moses and actually, ironically, moves him into Pharaoh's own household. You can go back and read about that. But what this teaches us is that God is always moving first. He always acts first, even while we're still in diapers, God is moving and acting on our behalf. God always takes the first step. Then we talked about Moses grows up in the royal palace, royal education, um, a prince of Egypt, and at at some point he becomes hyper-aware. He's known always that he's not like all the other Egyptians, but that he comes from this other people group who are enslaved in this time. And and finally, it, it sits so heavy on his soul, and he begins to get angry, and he sees one of his... Hebrew people, um, that's my guy right here, Stephen. This is my buddy Stephen, yeah. So um, he sees them being mistreated, and he loses his temper, and he murders one of the taskmasters. And his murder is found out, and he has to flee the country, and he flees into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he finds three things, God's mercy, his grace, and he finds a new mission, and he finds a wife and starts a family, and he spends decades in the wilderness thinking that's his new life. And then Ryan talked about last week, um, just one day, out of the blue, Moses is doing the same thing he's done again and again and again. He's taking the sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, taking them out, and God shows up in the form of a burning bush. And, and, and the fire is not consuming the bush. And Moses is intrigued and he goes and, and, and then he hears God speak to him through the bush. And God gives him a new mission. Which reminds us that God calls whomever he chooses to do the work that he's already planned for them. And Moses is just confused. <laughs> Why me, God? Don't you know what I've done? I'm not particularly skilled for this task that you're calling me to do, which is to go back, speak to Pharaoh, and have him free the people of Israel from slavery. So that's where we pick it up today. And it's in this encounter with this flaming bush that God and Moses are interacting. 
And Moses is going to tell God, listen, if I just go back and say I talked to a burning bush, nobody's going to believe me. What name should I give them? And this is where God reveals his personal name to Moses. And so we're going to see three things, three reasons why this matters to God and to us, that we have the revelation of his personal name. So it's going to go like this if you're taking notes. God reveals his name to distinguish, or you could say clarify himself from all other so-called gods. Second, God reveals his name to offer intimacy because he is thoroughly personal. He's a thoroughly personal being. And then third, God reveals his name to transfer his power to his people. And so we'll get to see all three of these things. So um, I'd like to just quickly read through um, the setup to this. So if you've got a Bible, you could turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to have it up on the screen for you as well. But I'd love to get your hands in the good book here if you've got a copy. If you don't, you could Google Exodus 3 so you can kind of see all the surrounding um, narrative. And it's so important to read this stuff in context. These stories would have been told in their in full at the gathering of the people we tend to kind of zoom in because we're hyper rational in our world today so uh, let me just start in chapter 3 exodus 3 verse 1 says this now moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law jethro now interesting if if you have been tracking with them he's first called rule and now moses is calling him jethro i think i think moses is on the end now and says, hey, you can call me what my close friends call me, which is Jethro, which totally sounds like, like rule sounds very serious. Jethro sounds very, let's party. Okay, so he says, he's, he's out with his, with his father-in-law Jethro, now his buddy, who's the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is also Mount Sinai, where he will bring back the people after freeing them from slavery. Verse 2, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And Ryan talked last week about what angel of the Lord means, that it's actually God himself. Angel just means in the Hebrew messenger. So this is probably a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming in the form of this messenger flame of fire, okay? Okay. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. See the personal calling. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I know it. Ryan talked about that last week. I know it. I feel with them. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you're doing the pop quizzes online, here's your answer. This does not mean that it's just a place for sweet tooths. This means that there's milk and honey because the bees have lots of flowers to collect the pollen and 
make their honeycomb and the, the cows get really nice and healthy because there's lots of grass and so they produce lots of milk and so this just means this is a fertile land. This is a really good place to live. It's the place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites currently live. And God says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Wait, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you. You see the transfer of power. I will be with you. My power will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So we'll see as the narrative goes on. They'll be back at this mountain, and this is where Moses will get the Ten Commandments from God. Now, verse 13. Then Moses said to God. He's not done bantering with God, protesting with God, debating with God, bargaining with God. Moses says, okay, God, you see the personal nature here? This is a very unusual way to interact with God. But Moses already sees the personal nature of the supreme being that he's speaking to. So Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say? We'll get into this, why this is the question that he asks. But let's keep reading. God said to Moses, so Elohim said to Moses, that's a very general word for God. Elohim said to Moses, and this is where he gives them his name, I am who I am. Ooh, very, very mysterious. We'll talk about that. This is the name that then gets translated Yahweh. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, now he's starting to use Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will give you up out of the affliction of the Egyptians to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, okay, I'm gonna, I'll do it for you. I'll give you my personal name. Now you go and you tell them that Yahweh sent you. And I'm the same God that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob worshipped. My name is Yahweh. Wow. This is such an important moment in the history of humanity with God. So what are the three reasons? First, God reveals his personal name to distinguish himself from all other so-called gods. So he's clarifying which being we're talking about here. Has this ever happened to you? Where you are talking with someone about something or, or someone else, and you're certain that you're talking about the same object of conversation until suddenly you realize that, that it's not true? You had that where it's like, oh, I thought we were talking about the same thing here. So I, I, this has happened to me so many times, but I just put together a little hypothetical conversation that I might have with my sister Kaylee, okay? saw my sister Kaylee this week, so I was thinking about her. This is a conversation we might have to kind of give you the idea. So um, 
I would call her up. I'd say, dude, I call her dude sometimes. Dude, did you watch that thing last night? Kaylee responds, oh, yeah, it rocked. Wasn't it like nothing you'd ever seen before? Totally. I can't believe she can do, uh, that she was able to do that. I know, right? The way she moved was totally unique. And, and, and then Kaylee, and then at the end, right, she just struck that perfect closing note. See, we're still tracking at this point. Yeah, yeah, I said, I was totally moved. Totally moved. Me too, Kaylee says. I can't believe that someone, I say, can pull that off in a leotard. Exactly. Who comes up with the outfits anyhow, Kaylee says. Right. Like, I wonder what she has to wear underneath to keep it all together. Kaylee says, I bet there's a lot of duct tape involved. (laughs) See, we're still tracking at this point. Yeah, totally. But do, do you think she ever gets cold? I mean, what temperature, I'm still talking here, what temperature do you think they have to keep the arena at so the ice doesn't melt? At which point Kaylee says, ice? We're talking about Lady Gaga's performance at the Grammys, right? I said, no, Lady Gaga, no, no, no. I watched Olympic figure skating last night. Long performance, great show. At which point Kaylee says, well, that's embarrassing. Duct tape. So you see, at some point we realized, oh, we didn't watch the same thing, but we got a long way into a conversation about the greatness of that performance. Lady Gaga is not the only thing that's creating confusion in this world. The term God gets thrown around a lot, but what exactly and who exactly are we talking about? Have you had this experience? Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody? Not a conversation about Lady Gaga or Ice Queens. But one about God and what you wanted at some point to say, pause, talk a time out. Explain to me exactly what you mean when you say God. Have you had, had this experience? Well, this is exactly what's happening here with Moses. He's like, when I go back, so look at verse 13. When I go back to the people and I say to them that the God of your fathers has spoken to me, that's going to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Why is this? Why, why, does, why does Moses need a clarifying, identifying name? The first reason might be Moses doesn't know much about this God of the Israelites. He grew up in the royal palace. He grew up worshiping the Egyptian gods. He probably heard about this God of the Israelites. But, but it's really the first time in the narrative up to this point that Moses actually is encountering this God. God's working on his behalf all the way to this point, but but Moses never actually speaks to this God. We don't hear him interacting with this God. This is the first time. The other reason is that when he returns to Egypt, he knows what what Egypt is like. He's lived there for over 40 years. He knows that there are so many gods. This is a pluralistic, polytheistic, pantheistic, syncretistic culture, meaning there's many gods, many idols, statues all around incorporated into all of life, Everyone, everyone worships multiple gods, multiple stories, multiple myths, and everything at least had a hint of the divine in it. And then all of these things are weaved together into these very syncretistic views of the world. And the Hebrew people would not have been immune to this. 
I mean, they've been in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years, so they, too, would have been swept up in this pluralistic, polytheistic, syncretistic culture. And so when Moses said, the God of your fathers, that might have meant different things from different households. Different fathers might have told different stories or incorporated different Egyptian myths into and alongside the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac. So, so Moses realizes what it's like in Egypt. He's been there. And this isn't a knock on the Israelites that are in Egypt. This is just the reality. Um, I mean, this is kind of the way it would have been in, say, 9th century Europe, where it was very much a Christian part of the world, but yet the education of the average peasant at the time would have had all sorts of things mixed into it, all, all sorts of stories and legends and, and other gods and spirits. They, they wouldn't have had this sort of perfect orthodox view of God. And so it's just the reality, and so Moses says, help me out here, God. Help me identify who you are. Give me something that when I go to them, they'll hear the name and they'll remember that's the God that we heard about. How could Moses know about that God unless truly he spoke to that God? That's what's going on here. You know what? Seattle's no different. Just the reality that all sorts of things get mixed into an understanding of God. Even if you grew up in a Christian home. So Moses understands it, and God understands it. And out of his love, he is distinguishing himself, clarifying himself for his chosen people, just like he does today, all over the world. And different cultures and different places need different clarifying. But all over the world, God is doing this out of love. He's using his chosen people, like he used Moses, to clarify himself to other chosen people whom he loves. He distinguishes himself from other so-called gods, ideologies, myths, folklore, false teaching, etc., so that we might worship him as best that we can and find freedom and life and love. So God distinguishes by giving us his name. Reason two. God reveals his personal name to offer intimacy as he is a thoroughly personal being. So look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So if we understand the narrative correctly, it seems to be that the personal name of God is Yahweh. And this personal name actually was already known to Abraham, Isaac, and other um, persons of faith in the past. And, and we know this because if we go back and we read Genesis, on the literary lips, so where Moses is quoting, obviously we don't have video from back then, but where he's, that's called the literary lips of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Laban, we have in the first book of the five-book Torah, we have people saying the name Yahweh. Now you'd say, you'd look back in Genesis and say, I see nowhere the name Yahweh. Yeah, because in most English translations, we've fallen, followed the tradition that because the, the Jewish people do not say the name Yahweh out loud, out of reverence, that they insert instead the name Adonai, which is translated in our English as Lord. 
So if you're looking at your Bible, and you can see it in other places, like look at verse 7 in chapter 3. It says, then the Lord, and you see that Lord is in all capital letters, that is actually Yahweh, okay? So we see the name Yahweh on the literary lips of these people in the book of Genesis. And so Moses wasn't the first person, but he would have been bringing people back to this personal name. Why is that? Well, perhaps they'd forgotten Or as I just said, more likely, they had over time gotten out of the habit of praying to, calling upon in worship the personal name of Yahweh. And instead, sort of abstracted to this more general idea of God. Even if they were referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they'd stopped probably using this personal name. But they'd heard stories or remembered. And this is very, very common. It's very common for... um, the personal name of God, to devolve into an abstraction or an idea of God. This is one of the huge things that happens. Because an idea is broader and it fits in neatly to a pluralistic, syncretistic culture, like the Egyptian culture was, like the culture in the West is. So it's safer to think of God as an idea rather than a personal being. So God says... Not anymore. When you go back, Moses, one, one of, if not the most important thing that I want you to do, again, remember, it's freedom from slavery, but not only. It's freedom for worship. He says, I do want you to free them from the oppression that they're under so that they can be free to worship my personal name. So I want you, Moses, to go and recenter all of the Hebrew people's worship on the personal God that uses the personal name Yahweh. That's what I want you to do, Moses. So what's in this name? What's so important about this name? Well, we have to remember names are really important. Names, especially in ancient times, said something about you. Maybe a little bit less today. Well, definitely a little bit less today. But a name not only designates you, it also helps define you, tells people about you. And so what is this name, I am who I am, which, which we translate Yahweh? What is this saying? Well, I am who I am, it's, it's literally in the text just two forms of the same verb to be. So that's why we say I am, I am. But that sounds weird, so it's translated I am who I am. I ca- or another way to think of it is I cause to be because I cause to be. Oh, man, there's some mystery in this name, and much ink has been spilled over what is God trying to communicate here. And at some level, the exact meaning is beyond our comprehension, because how can we know the the infinite mind of God with our finite minds? But God is trying to reveal something about who he is by giving us, just like a father and a mother will name their child, and they'll try to explain it to you. This is why I named my son Owen. And I can try to, but, but there's still something I can't quite, there's something so deep in my soul that when I first heard that word, and when I say that word, there's so much more meaning in it that I can transfer to you. Same thing here. So when God says, I am who I am, there's so much there, even than we can extract. But we can try to understand, why does he pick this name for himself? Why does he name himself as such? So um, Dr. John Piper gives a shot at this, and I just want to read what he says, because I think it's really helpful. Again, this is, there's so much ink that's been spilled, but um, he, he, he's going to give us ten things that he says, and I'm just going to give you the, 
the, the cliff notes here about I am who I am, what that means. And, and this is how he sets it up, and I think this is important, so listen closely. Until God becomes dominant in our thinking and in our feeling, until God becomes the blazing sun at the center of our solar system of our daily lives, until God becomes the Mount Everest in the foothills of all our concerns with this world, until God rests on the souls of the saints in Belfast, he was preaching a sermon in Ireland, and on the churches of Northern Ireland, until he rests on the churches and the people here with a 10,000 times more weight than all your political concerns and all your church growth concerns and, and all of our talk about the glory of God and singing and gathering for the worship will be just tinkering and engineering of religion to try to get people to do what we hope they will do in some kind of appropriate way. The world doesn't need more tinkering with religion. It needs God. It needs to see God. It needs to be stunned that there is a God. So it's no accident That when Moses says, who's sending me? God says, I am who I am. And we need to linger over that. He goes on to say that we can at least conclude these ten things about what I am who I am means. First, God has no beginning. Which is to say, nobody made God. He just was always there. Two, God is without end. If he didn't come into being, then he can't go out of being. Three, God is absolute reality. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it and creates it. Four, God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing. He is absolutely independent. Five, everything depends on him. All that is Not God, all that is not God, is secondary. That means the entire universe is a secondary reality. Let that sink in for just a second. Number six, nothing compares to God. Galaxies compared to God are nothing. All the universe, by comparison to God, is as nothing. As a bubble to the ocean. Isaiah 40, 17 says this, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I am who I am. I cause to be because I cause to be. Number seven, God cannot be improved. There is no development in God. Absolute perfection cannot be improved. Number eight, God sets the ultimate standard, which is to say he himself is the standard of right, true, beautiful. You set it up next to God, and that's how you tell. Number nine, God always does right. God does whatever he pleases, and it is always right, always beautiful, always in accord with the truth. I am I am. And number 10, nothing is worth more than God. He is the most valuable, the most important person in existence. What shall I call them, Moses says. What shall I call you? I am who I am. I cause to be because I cause to be. I create and I do what I will. I am like no other. That's what I want you to call me.
So within this name, Yahweh, is this preeminence of a creator, sovereign God who is purposeful and personal and wills things to happen. He has desires. And, and, and this is who the God of the Israelites is. This is the God speaking to Moses. And, and this might seem like a, like a foreign notion to you, and that is because of what we've said. That, that I want you to just think for a second. Before the fall which we see at the very beginning of Genesis, God created all things, and Adam and Eve and humanity are dwelling with God in perfect relation. They know he's the perf- personal, purposeful, loving God, and then they choose, you know what, God, I think I could do a little bit better on my own, and they rebel. They decide to do it their own way, and this thing severs, and the thing that falls apart is the personal nature of God, and God devolves from that point on into just an idea or an abstraction. It's just sort of like a memory of what was. But the personal nature is God. And so you see this downward spiral as people stop referring to God in his personal nature and they just think of him as an abstraction. And so then the rest of the Bible from Exodus on is God and and it's never just upward trajectory. It's always going and then falling and then going and then falling. It's It's this spiral. But God in his love is seeking to restore that intimacy that was lost. He is trying to change in in the minds of humanity, in our minds. In my mind, he's trying to remind me he's not just an idea, he's a person. He's a personal being, and he's trying to reveal himself to me so that I know that, and that I would choose to re-engage with him as a person, not just as an idea. And so we get to this burning bush, and, and when we once called God Elohim, or El Shaddai, God Almighty even, he says, no, call me by my personal name, Yahweh. And there's this shift, and this happens again and again and again. God wants us to interact with him as though he is a person, not an idea. That is the arc of Scripture. And here, is, this is why we paused on this, it's such an important moment. Ultimately, we'll see, and we'll talk about this at the end, that he reveals himself in the personal name and physical manifestation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Can't get more personal than taking on flesh. See, that's what God's doing. And so here's, for this point, the application is this. God is not an idea to be pondered. And you are not an idea to God. God has a name, and you have a name to God. So our salvation can be summed up like this. God sacrifices and his enduring, persisting love reveals himself to us in a personal way so that we might know each other in the intimacy of personal knowledge. That's what God's trying to do. That's what salvation means if you trust this book. This is what salvation is. Now, there's all sorts of implications to what that means. But at the end of the day, God is trying to get us back to the place that we were created to be in a personal, name-to-name relationship with our creator, the divine of the universe. And we'll see he stops at nothing to make that possible. So reason three, God reveals his personal name to transfer his power to his people. Okay? He's not greedy. 
He wants to, like Ryan said, he wants to, for some reason, put the fence up together with his children. Doesn't make it faster or easier, but there's something that happens when dad and son build the fence. They get to know one another. They get to celebrate together. They get to rustle a bit. But that's how God wants to do it. He wants to give us his power to accomplish his plan. So, so this idea that, that in the name, the personal name of a God, there is power, that's actually not something that would have been new at the time of the Egyptians. In the ancient Near East, all culture practiced calling upon the names of their deities to, to have power. So I want to read for you real quick a really famous example of this in 1 Kings chapter 18. You can turn there if you want. Um, I'm just going to read it to you. It's a really interesting passage that, that highlights this. So this is at the time of Israel, after they've made it through the wilderness, and they've come to Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they've set up a kingdom, and, and now, as it might sound, the first and second kings are about the time of the monarchy in Israel. And so what we have here is a, is a very ungodly, irreverent king, King Ahab, and he's got like all these prophets that he's paid money to to kind of say what he wants them to say. And these prophets also worship Baal, which is, in a, is a form of syncretism where they, some of the Canaanites stuck around and they worship this god called Baal. And uh, there's all these prophets to Baal, like 450 of them. And then there's this one prophet, Elijah, who, who, who nobody likes because he's always saying really difficult things and saying, you need to repent, you got to help the poor, you got to stop oppressing people, you got to worship God alone. And, and so they come to this standoff. And they're going to each call upon their gods. So let's just, I'm going to just read it to you. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, so, so you picture this. All these people are gathered around and it's like a, it's like a, going to be a fight. <laughs> okay, basically. Uh, it's like a rap battle, but I don't know how many of you. White folks know about those. Okay, so here we go. And Elijah came near, and all the people said, How long will you be limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, so he's, he's solo here, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. A lot more money in the worship of Baal, so a lot of people go into that profession. Elijah's left alone as a prophet of Yahweh. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them, the prophets of Baal, choose one bull. He's saying, listen, y'all choose first. And put it on wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. He's the true God. And all the people answered. It is well spoken. They're like, yes, we're definitely going to win, 450 to 1. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to the altar. And they took the bull that, they, that was given to them and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So it's like... From 8 a.m. till 12, four hours. Oh, Baal, answer us. 
But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar and they, that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, cry louder. Maybe that's why he doesn't hear you, for he is God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Do I need to translate that for you? He's taking a bathroom break. See, he's mocking. And he, or maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he took a nap. <laughs> says asleep, but he's basically, maybe he's napping. And, and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves with the custom of, the, of their day with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. And at midday, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Come near to me. And all the people came, and they gathered closer. And he repa- uh, repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench about the altar. So he made it it harder. He made a trench around it, as great as would contain two sheaves of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it. On the burnt offering, so soak the burnt offering. Let's make it as hard as possible for this thing to ignite. Soak it, fill the trench with water, and then he said, now do it a second time. Drench it in water. And then he said, do it a third time. Drench it in water. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me, that his people may know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. Just picture that, licked up the water. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Now, that's when you drop the mic and you say, come back. And God always invites his people back. Now let me just say this, for Christians, we must remember, this isn't like a magical incantation. God is not some genie in a bottle that if we just say his name, the right name, that he'll do whatever we ask. That's, that's not what's going on here. Elijah knows I am who I am, personally. He knows him. He has a relationship with him. And so it's like he's ringing a friend. He's calling a father. He's asking a family member to come his aid. So when we know God, when we trust God, when we give our life to God and then we call upon his name, he will transfer power to us. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which means, may your name be holy Upon our lips. This is why Moses later, we'll see in the book of Exodus, when he, when, when he pens from God the Ten Commandments, the third commandment is never take the Lord's name, Yahweh's name, in vain. 
which is to say, don't misuse this holy name. And if you do, the commandment says, God will hold you accountable. There's power in the name of God. So there it is. Three reasons why God reveals his personal name to Moses. And if you're a thinking person, you're probably at this point thinking, why hasn't anyone told me this? <laughs> I've, been in a Christ- I've been Christian for a long time. I never say the name Yahweh aloud. Am I doing something wrong? <laughs> Did somebody lead me astray? In fact, you're probably thinking, when I pray, I always pray in the name of Jesus. But here, it seems like we're supposed to pray to Yahweh. What's going on? It's a great question. Are we missing something? Um, Turn to John chapter 8. John is one of the gospels that accounts for us Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his teachings. And, And this is something that Jesus said. John 8, 53. I think we'll have it up here on the screen for you. The Pharisees, that's the highest ranking Jewish officials of the day are confronting Jesus. They don't like him. He's stirring things up. Uh, They're getting in the way of their Yahweh worship. And so they ask him, Hey, Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, they died? Because Jesus was predicting that he'd rise again. Who do you make yourself out to be? They ask him. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him, Jesus says. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Okay. This is, this is getting wild. Jesus says, He saw it and he was glad. Abraham was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Who lived thousands of years ago? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they, that's the Pharisees, picked up stones to throw at Jesus. They tried to kill him. And Jesus escaped. Before Abraham was, I am. The Pharisees knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am Yahweh. When Mary, Jesus' mother, was became pregnant, Gabriel, the angel, appeared to her with a message and said, you shall call your child Yeshua, which we translate Jesus. You know what Yeshua is? Yahweh saves. Yah, for Yahweh, Shua, saves. So this Jesus claim to be sent by God, by Yahweh himself, 
But not just that. He claimed to be the great I am. He identified himself as God, Yahweh, in the flesh. And he performs countless miracles to confirm his identity. And of course then, he dies a criminal's death because of this claim to be God in the flesh. That's why, that's what he was charged with, convicted of, and ultimately hung on a cross because of blasphemy. Blasphemy, claiming to be Yahweh. So then why do Christians center all of their worship and prayer and call upon the name of a criminal, charged, convicted, crucified, for blaspheming the name of Yahweh and breaking the third commandment? Because this Yeshua rose from the dead. That's why we worship. So when you call your shot, claiming to be God, and then appear to over 500 people after the fact, risen from the dead, confirming that you are in fact who you said you were, then we have a progress in the revelation of the name of God. What did I say about names? When a name changes, it means something profound has changed. What was once in the minds of people, just an idea of who God was, and then he's revealed, I am who I am, call me by name, and then he reveals himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, his name changes. And now we address God by the name, personal name, Jesus. You see this? This is the progressive revelation of God's personal identity. Jesus is the next and final step of the revelation. And so this is why the New Testament, after Jesus, what the prophets and apostles wrote, the New Testament states this, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, in the heavenlies, that's the spiritual realm, and in the physical realm, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. James 2 then tells us that we have power over the spiritual realm, demons and darkness, in the name of Jesus. They tremble at the name Jesus. They know who he is. And Romans 10 tells us that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this is why we pray in Jesus' name. If you've ever heard us pray here or maybe you've heard other people pray in the end of prayer, we pray this in the name of Jesus. It's, it's not some magical formula that like makes all your all your prayer requests come true. It's acknowledging that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, that for all eternity, the personal name of God is Jesus. And so we address Jesus, and we ask through Jesus. He is our great high priest that speaks for us in the heavenly places on our behalf. He mediates for us, and so we pray in his name. The specific, not an idea. We pray specifically to Jesus, God, the Son. And he hears us, just like a person would hear you. So 
one final implication to this. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all separated from God. And we have to understand that if we want to be forgiven by this forgiving God, it is not enough to simply have an idea of grace or an idea of a loving God or idea of a forgiving God. We have to personally address the personal God himself claiming for ourselves all of its promises of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness in the personal name of Jesus. Is that making sense? I think too often we think it's enough to think of the idea that if there's a God, he must be loving. God says, no, I've revealed how this all works. Yes, the idea is true, but it happens through the person of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to believe in the system of God. You must believe in the person of God, who is Jesus Christ, the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.